Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Grayson and today's episode is called Spooky Disaster Myths, the disaster fairy tales we just can't stop telling. In this episode, I'll be highlighting what I think are some of the biggest disaster myths out there and discussing why I think that even some of these ancient myths are worth addressing today. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current Relevant Canadian. Well, happy Halloween, everyone. Uh, Just before we get started with this episode, I want to make it clear that this is actually the audio from a presentation uh, that I gave. So it does talk about slides here and there, but you don't need them to understand the content here. And uh, without any further ado, uh, please enjoy. And I'm very interested to hear if anyone disagrees with any of these particular myths. So do reach out after the show. If you can close your eyes and imagine a time long, long ago when we actually used to meet in person, I might have started off this presentation by saying, please look around, the emergency exits are over there. And this is actually a myth that I'd like to start off with in a bit of a pet peeve of mine. Escaping through an emergency exit is not always the appropriate mechanism to respond to emergencies. There are all sorts of emergencies where you think you might want to shelter in place or do something other than evacuate. And you might think this is semantics or maybe not very important, but I can show you several different uh, examples of these training scars, as I'll I'll put them, uh, being inappropriate. For example, a few years ago, there was a tornado warning in Calgary, and that resulted in an evacuation of lots and lots of different buildings. And of course, that's not what you want to do in a tornado. You want to get in, get down, and get covered. Even on a very small scale, everything we do adds up in the end. And some of the myths that we propagate, even in little settings like like this, saying here are the emergency exits, um, might have some pretty serious consequences down the road. I'm going to do my best during this presentation not to talk about COVID very much, but it's hard to avoid. And it has really led to an evaluation of lots of emergency management, including demonstrating the failure of some of our practices and institutions, exposing vulnerabilities, and really redefining complexity. And I really like this cartoon on on the right here. Uh, For those of you just listening in, there's a picture of a collapsed trebuchet. One person saying, I thought this thing had been tried and tested. The other person saying it has and it didn't work that time either. So time to reevaluate what we do. And I like to bring it all back down to what disaster management really is, which is a social science. Everything we do is about the perception of risk and safety as it applies to realities. And one of the biggest challenges in emergency management is influencing that risk perception or that risk communication and changing human behavior. Now, there are many, many, many different social science uh, constructed algorithms and, and frameworks to understand how you influence human behavior. Here's one. This is called the ladder of perception. It starts off with data at the bottom, your own individual observations, selecting the facts that kind of make sense to you in your observed reality, interpreting those facts in your own context of your own assumptions and your own conclusions. And that leads to creating beliefs about the world that may or may not have anything to do with the the data at the very bottom. And then you take action based on those beliefs. I I like this 
particular ladder of perception, but it's not the only one out there. Here's another one. This is the health belief model. Starts off with demographic variables and psychological characteristics such as personality or your peer group. Uh, and then you interpret everything through that lens to start off with, whether it's your perceived susceptibility to a risk, the, the severity of that risk, your own motivations to act on the risk. Uh, eventually that leads to action. And really the only where, way that we have to influence that action is through cues, information or public announcements or whatever it may be to, to influence that, that action in this particular model. I think this one's been of particular interest during the pandemic. Uh, here's another one. This is called the social cognitive theory. It combines environmental, behavioral, and cognitive factors to determine what your behavior might be. Here's an another one. This is called the trans-theoretical model of change and looks super complicated. Here's another one. It's the socio-ecological model, and here's one that's too difficult to look at. My point is, is there's all sorts of different socially constructed algorithms and and uh, things out there but really from my experience anyways they all really boil down to this combination of belief action and results so basically the impact that your pre-existing beliefs have on your action regardless of the available facts the causality that we often wrongfully impose on the interaction between the actions we take and the results that we observe and then the sometimes contradictory but usually falsely reinforcing effect uh, that the results we observe have on the beliefs we hold so we really do perceive the world based on our beliefs, our actions, and the results that we think apply to those beliefs and actions. And influencing that is very difficult. And as you'll see, facts really don't have a whole heck of a lot to do with any of this. So seeing all of these frameworks, I was feeling a little bit of FOMO. Uh, so I decided to create my own. So introducing Grayson's completely unscientific hierarchy of utter nonsense uh, as applied to disaster management, myths, malpractice, mistakes, and misinformation. I've created it in the typical social science uh, formula of a layered pyramid, which is very important for social science. And at the very top is what I'd like to call permissive wrongness. This is the white lie. This is the thing that you know is technically wrong, but you know, work is hard, so whatever, I'll go with it. Uh, the risk here is potentially minimal and controllable, but you do risk losing credibility if you're discovered or if you're called out on it. The next layer down is the functional lunacy layer. I would describe this as the experience trap. You're not entirely sure why you do it, but it seemed to work before. Uh, though if you really thought through it, you'd probably have some questions. I think the risk here is moderate and potentially uncontrollable, easily compoundable. You risk losing time and resources, so this can have a real cost, but you can probably recover if you recognize it early. The next layer down is trendy nonsense, and another name for this might be the best malpractice. It's the common mistake we all make but fail to recognize. This can be very damaging and uncontrollable. You risk total failure. And you might be able to justify your actions because everyone else is doing it, but the mistake has been made and you need to focus on doing better next time. And then finally at the, the bottom in black, because it's very difficult to see, is the game changer, the total myth. Everything you do is based on this core belief, but you were just wrong. This is a catastrophic impact, endlessly compounding and eternal. You risk doing irreversible societal damage and becoming the problem instead of solving it, and it is time for you to do some serious soul searching and change. So because it's a social science model, you also have to put a little cloud at the top, and a lot of the myths start off with misinformation. Uh, and I think it's possible through correcting misinformation to stop the progression of 
these myths through permissive wrongness all the way down to total myth, but it's sometimes hard to catch. And again, because this is a social science model, you got to put the iceberg model in there. Uh, I think that the permissive wrongness and functional lunacy myths are the tip of the iceberg. They're the visible ones. There's the ones that you can see and correct. Uh, but the trendy nonsense and total myths are the ones below the surface that are very hard to recognize and very hard to correct. So there you have it. That's con Grayson's completely unscientific hierarchy of utter nonsense, not yet trademarked, not yet uh, approved by uh, peer review or anything like that. But it's the model I'll be using to kind of go through some of the myths that I've observed and seen in the literature. I'll try to identify when I'm talking about well-established myths and then things that I'm still sort of working through as uh, potential myths in our practice. Let's start off with permissive wrongness. I think the best example of permissive wrongness is the term natural disaster. If you are schooled in emergency management within the past 10 years, this is probably a no-brainer. There is no such thing as a natural disaster. Disasters are societally constructed risks and hazards and vulnerabilities uh, that uh, result in harm. Um, nature doesn't have a whole lot to do with it. All disasters are man-made. You should just say disaster. And this has popped up its uh, ugly head a few times, especially during the, the flooding in BC, where they talk about natural disasters as basically an act of God, unpredictable, unforeseeable, where really we have lots and lots of data to predict and foresee these things. Uh, if you're interested in this myth, natural disaster, I'd encourage you to check out the hashtag no natural disasters campaign, uh, which is uh, basically a long, long standing campaign of academics trying to get rid of this term because it does lead to all of the other myths that I'm, I'm talking about. Some other kind of terminology based myths are using risk, hazard, and vulnerability and impact interchangeably. Uh, it's just not very specific and it can start to mislabel the things that we need to address, which can have some impacts down the road. Uh, I've often heard people talking about resilience and resistance in the same way, and they're two very, very different things. Uh, functionally, um, there's this propensity to call things a unified command when it's actually just a multi-agency response and there is no unified command. It's just everyone acting within their own agencies. And then my favorite or least favorite uh, are emergency procedures that say stay calm or <laughs> start with obtain the checklist. These are unobtainable, uncontrollable uh, objectives that have nothing to do with the actual disaster. So keep an eye out for these in your own practice and in the media because they are very common and can lead to lots and lots of uh, misunderstandings down the road. If we move on to the next level, which is the functional lunacy or the experience trap, I think some good examples of this are systems like the triage systems, medical triage systems in particular. Uh, I have put incident command system uh, in here as a, a, a potential functional lunacy. I'll clarify that by saying using incident command system methodologies in a complex situation is, is a functional lunacy trap. And then Canadian emergency management legislation. And I might be upgrading this a little bit uh, based on some of the current events around the Emergencies Act and lots of the confusion and misinformation and disinformation that's coming out around how our emergency management legislation works, what it's good for and what it's not good for. In all of these cases, I would say 
that the problem with these practices is it is a simple on complex failure. You are trying to use a simple system in a complex environment. Uh, simple approaches are usually predetermined actions based on known quantities. And in a complex disaster, you have unknown quantities and you have emerging practice and ideas that need to be developed in real time. Um, so let's take a look at a couple of these. So triage systems, and I'm going to use a medical triage system as an example because all triage systems evolve from medical triage systems. I think the most common medical triage system out there, at least pre-hospitally, is the start triage system, basically simple triage and rapid treatment. And it breaks things down based on patient presentation in the first 30 seconds of your assessment. You know, are they walking? Are they breathing? Or do they have a, a heart rate? Uh, and are they conscious sort of thing? And this is seems good right like it seems it wouldn't it be great if we could just take 30 seconds and classify someone as urgent or, or not urgent so there's a real desire to make this happen and it is simple it is rapid you can do this very quickly but it is less than 10 percent accurate in predicting the final patient outcome and it is not a useful tool for deciding who gets transported first or who goes to the certain hospitals. So this sort of simple on complex failure is problematic for two reasons. One, you might be putting resources in the wrong place. And two, there's a real chance for moral injury here. And by that, I mean, you get trapped as a first responder in this case, or maybe as an emergency manager in between a rock and a hard place where the thing you're supposed to do doesn't work. So you either choose not to do it and then get roasted for it later or do it and realize that you're not actually doing any good, especially if you have had some time in the field. So those are some of the risks associated with uh, processes like this. Um, the next one I'm going to look at is basically EM legislation and some of the, the tools that we commonly use in emergency management. And one of the things that opened my mind to some of the problems with emergency management legislation in, in Canada is that it literally has an on-off switch. Half the time, the law isn't the law, or more than half the time. The only time that the law is the law is when there is a disaster, and that is very unique to emergency management legislation. And it means that the only time that you can use emergency management legislation, especially when it uh, applies to kind of declarations of emergency, is when there's a response. So no preparedness, no mitigation, no recovery, just response, uh, which means it's the wrong tool for emergency management, which deals primarily with preparedness, mitigation and recovery, not with response. And as we're seeing, much of the federal emergency management legislation is also a little bit disconnected and discombobulated uh, as it applies to federal, provincial and municipal. There's not a whole lot of connection or oversight between the different acts. And in fact, lots of the myths and misinformation that's coming up around the Emergencies Act is around uh, this idea that the Emergencies Act means that the federal government is in charge of provinces and that is simply not the case. So if we're using the wrong tools, then that's a bit of a problem and it's time to, to reevaluate some of those tools. Maybe not to get rid of them, but really to define when they are useful and when they are not. Let's move on to trendy garbage. Now we're getting below the water into some of the, the really damaging myths that are out there. And the one that I like to use an example is this idea of a 72 hour kit. Uh, the 72 hours comes from nowhere and means nothing. Uh, there are plenty of examples of when 72 hours would not be enough. Uh, just think of some of the communities that were cut off by landslides recently, and you could come up with any number of disasters or locations where 72 hours isn't really appropriate. Yet, 72-hour kits or even just emergency kits 
are often used specifically and almost entirely on their own as an indicator of preparedness. So if you go into uh, personal preparedness research, nine times out of 10, they use the presence of an emergency kit to determine whether or not that person is prepared or not. So using the emergency management kit as an independent indicator of preparedness is not good science. It doesn't make any sense. And there's a lot of um, clarity that's required around the utility of emergency kit. Another trendy garbage practice is cooling centers during heat waves. And this I took some convincing for me to put this into the, the trendy garbage bucket because it makes a lot of sense. You know, it's hot, make it cool somewhere, people can go to it. But if you think past the, the hot and cold uh, mechanism, the only people that could possibly access a cooling center is someone who can find out where it is. So internet access, radio access, that sort of thing, can get there, owns a car, can walk, ambulatory, and uh, is comfortable going outside without assistance. So essentially, cooling centers are for people who can already look after themselves and can already protect themselves. It does not address the people who are actually vulnerable to heat waves, which is the immobile, non-ambulatory, no access to, to information or internet and live alone type um, people, as is determined by the, the coroner's report from the heat dome event in BC last year. Uh, there are a couple other examples on here. Um, if you work in the healthcare system, there's a really trendy thing is these emergency response codes. So codified emergency notifications, a code red is fire, a code blue is a medical response, that sort of thing. If you think about it, codifying or basically making emergency and risk information less accessible is not a moral act. If there's a fire in the building and you're using a code word to communicate that, then you are excluding anyone who hasn't undergone the training, you're excluding anyone who doesn't understand the code. Um, and most of the time, that's everyone in the building because these codes are very poorly understood. Maybe I'll just make a distinction. Emergency response codes that are used to communicate rapidly between two affiliated responders are perfectly fine. If you need to secretly call for help for, from another responder without anyone knowing, then the, a code's the way to go. But if you are trying to communicate risk information to the public, don't use codes, don't use acronyms, use plain language. The last one here, and I'm expecting maybe a little bit of controversy on this one, is risk matrices. Uh, as emergency managers, we love to sit down and brainstorm the different types of risks there are, imagine what sort of impacts they could have, and rank them from one to 10 on some sort of uh, impact scale. Uh, this slide is, is ripped directly from my favorite uh, disaster academic, uh, Dr. Etkin, and he has some great information on why risk matrices are broken mathematically and problematic operationally. And here, I'm going to just highlight a couple of the, the big problems with risk matrices. The first one is it assumes that risks are well-defined and really can be examined in a silo, but it doesn't really examine the interconnected nature of, of different hazards and, and technological vulnerabilities. And it certainly doesn't account for real scientific probability, which would be very difficult to establish in unreliable situations. So, you know, you can't go back in time and make a probability assessment based on past occurrences because past probability has nothing to do with future 
future frequency. So there are some really big problems with a lot of the tools we use. And uh, another good way of understanding why risk matrices are a little bit broken and some of the math doesn't work, depending on the risk matrices that you use, uh, is Etkin's example of the person donating blood. So the most common algorithm for risk matrices and understanding risk is risk equals likelihood times consequence. So if you take that math as is and have two scenarios of someone donating blood, the first one is Albert and he uh, is a responsible citizen and he gives one liter of blood every year for 30 years. One times 30, his risk is 30. Uh, and then Brad is a bit, bit of a procrastinator and he decides to get it all over with right away. Uh, so he gives 30 liters of blood in one year uh, and he dies. So same risk score, very different outcomes. And that's just a fun little example of how some of the math we use in risk is just outright broken. So that's some of the trendy garbage examples that I have been uh, sort of exploring. And then the really big one is this idea of a total myth, something that you truly believe is the case and turns out is wrong. The characteristics of total myths are that they are socially constructed. So they're not factual per se. These are social constructs. Uh, they are foundational to your practice or to your organization. They are pervasive. This is like widely um, accepted and entrenched. And they are counter to personal or social values. I'll get a bit more into that um, as well. So basically denying that it is true is counter to your own values. So it's very, very difficult to, to change. Uh, and it's also very inconvenient and expensive to change things that, that are based on, on total myths. So this really is a paradigm shift that I'm talking about. And we've gone through quite a few. So there, here are a few of the, the classic total myths that have been disbunked. Uh, disasters as an act of God is something that I would like to say is debunked, although it's been kind of poking its head back up a little bit. Uh, these are not uh, random occurrences. The As we know, disasters are socially constructed and the vulnerabilities that we have created interacting with the natural or technological or or the risk in the world is where disasters arise from, not from random chaos. Um, this idea of excluding spontaneous volunteers from uh, disaster response, I would, uh, I hope is uh, debunked after all the, the wonderful help during COVID and all of the people who uh, jumped to action in all sorts of different disasters. The first responders are the people on scene, which which are the people who would otherwise be cast as, as victims. And I do see this sometimes still, um, where very uh, militant individuals or people who are, uh, you know, quite um, uh, connected to their uniform don't like to see the public helping out and will try to keep them, keep them out of the response. Uh, that's a futile effort anyways. Um, and it, it really is spontaneous volunteers that get us through disasters, not the established uh, order and not the established response mechanisms, because the definition of disaster is that those established response mechanisms are overwhelmed. So spontaneous vol volunteers are definitely uh, required. And then this idea of a top-down approach, um, I think has been debunked a little bit, especially in Canada. You know, all of our EM legislation is quite quite local and it's almost a disasterism or a common disaster saying that all disasters are at least initially managed locally. 
I think that all of these key myths have to do with some other myths that have not yet been totally debunked. Uh, this idea of social degradation, you know, if the government fails or if established processes fails, then society will just collapse into chaos. Um, casting victims and, and populations as helpless is a very dangerous mindset and still seems to be one that um, that occurs. Uh, and then this idea of panic. And I think the, the myth of panic, the myth of mass panic during disaster is probably the most damaging of all. And that's the one that I'd like to talk about right now. So meet Pan. This is the, the Greek god of the wild, and he is also the god of shepherds and flocks. And according to a Google image search that I can never unsee, uh, the god of doing inappropriate things with goats. This mythical being is also the god of panic, which is fitting because in disasters, mass panic truly is a myth. Now, I'm not saying that individual panic isn't real. Uh, certainly that dump of adrenaline, the tunnel vision, the shaking hands, all those things that are often talked about as the four Fs, fight, flight, freeze, or mate, uh, those are very real, and I'm embarrassed to say that I am no stranger to panic. Um, I've worked as a, a paramedic for many years, and one of my favorite EMS stories is of my first time delivering a baby. I was a brand new medic, they were a wonderful couple having their first kid, and as the messy miracle of life plopped into my hands, all I could think was, don't drop it. Uh, so when the father, desperate to know the sex of the baby, asked, what is it? I, in a bit of a panic, answered, it's a baby. So yes, uh, panic is real. It's embarrassing. It makes you do stupid stuff, but it's also uniquely and terrifyingly a lonely experience. It is not contagious, is not transferable, and it is not what people do in disaster. So uh, if not panic, then how do they behave? Well, luckily there's hundreds of years of disaster research to fall back on, which I will try to get through in the next four minutes. Uh, this is the Halifax explosion. As a quick reminder, this was the largest non-nuclear explosion ever. Was caused by a collision with a munition ship packed to the gills with TNT and the shockwave from this thing shattered every window in Halifax, destroyed 400 acres instantly and 1600 people lost their lives in the first half second. But that wasn't all. The shockwave upended all the cast iron fireplaces in the wooden houses causing huge fires which couldn't be put out because the fire department had just ceased to exist. And all of this during World War One. So people were convinced that this was an attack. If there was ever a time to panic, uh, this would have been it. But that's not what happened. Shortly after, a Canadian disaster hero, Dr. Samuel Prince, became the first scholar to accurately describe true human behavior in disaster. The spontaneous formation of committees, the emergence of volunteers, and the convergence of aid from places like Boston, despite all communication and transportation lines being cut off. Unfortunately, Dr. Prince had his hands tied a bit by the social theory of the day, which was this man is a beast theory. Uh, and this was basically the idea that society and government was the only thing stopping us from becoming bloodthirsty animals and ripping each other's heads off. Uh, luckily, we've come a long way since then, and a century of research shows that far from being panicky animals, people tend to demonstrate highly social behavior in disaster. Behaviors such as affiliation or milling, where people come together to verify information and make rational decisions based on their perception. Uh, and this leads to altruism, usually not fear. In fact, motivating rapid action amongst the masses, such as an evacuation, is incredibly difficult to do, as I'm sure the emergency managers on this line will attest to. Uh, this is sometimes referred to as an optimism bias or even reverse panic, where people tend to wait and see as opposed to following formal evacuation orders. So if panic truly isn't an issue, why does the myth persist? And I think one reason it's uh, is the way it's reported. 
So from exaggerated reports of looting and crime during Hurricane Katrina to headlines declaring shooting causes mass panic while showing video of people doing perfectly reasonable things like running away. Panic is a word the media simply needs to remove from its vocabulary. It's also a little ironic because it was in fact the media that first helped identify panic as a myth. Uh, there's a century worth of photos and videos of disaster scenes where people are shown to be definitively not panicking, but instead springing into action and becoming those true first responders. Another reason the myth persists, I think, is because of misplaced causality and, dare I say it, some professional arrogance on our part. This is a picture of the 1989 Hillsborough Crowd Crush disaster in which 96 people lost their lives. At the time, this disaster was blamed on soccer hooliganism, drunkenness, and panic. There are some echoes of that in recent events today. It turns out, however, that when you severely over-admit people into a poorly designed stadium and then close all the exits, the crowd has no choice but to act as a fluid mass, pressure builds up, the air is squeezed from your lungs and you die standing up, not from being trampled, as is commonly reported. It took 27 years for the police to take responsibility for this disaster. And here you can begin to see why I think this myth is so dangerous. Uh, the inappropriate shifting of responsibility away from improper response or lack of preparedness and on to the most vulnerable and impacted members of society who literally could not have reacted any other way is basically scapegoating. So why does this matter? I think this myth has a massive impact on response because it wastes resources and time on things that are either not a problem or on a mechanism or action that doesn't solve the problem. It has an impact on preparedness because the effectiveness and cost of preparedness is directly linked to its outcome. It has an impact on recovery, not just on physical recovery or organizational recovery, but on psychological recovery. If there's scapegoating happening or if you've done everything you're supposed to and it still doesn't work, that is a recipe for moral injury. And it has an impact on society. It impacts how much trust we have from the public. Uh, it impacts the way that we socially construct disasters. If we get something wrong as to a core reason for the disaster occurrence, then that's a, a long-lasting impact. Also, the idea that because you're in a position of authority, you won't panic, but the rest of the population will, is just mind-blowingly arrogant. And it can quickly lead to the still common practice of withholding information to prevent panic, or as I like to call it, the you-can't-handle-the-truth paradigm. My favorite example of this comes from the Three Mile Island incident where poor engineering practices uh, brought the area to the brink of catastrophe. The public wanted to know what was going on. And in response, the government and plant officials downplayed and lied about the impacts and even went so far as to say, I don't see why this is any of your business. Just let us do our jobs. So if this seems familiar, it's probably because it's the plot of every zombie movie ever. Uh, something happens, the government lies, society descends into chaos, and I've always thought that this was a bit odd because in these movies, I don't really see man as a beast. I see groups of resourceful individuals coming together and helping each other to survive. So what can be done? Uh, I think there are a few things that we can do in our practice. Um, one is understanding actual human behavior in disaster, and this comes from Dr. Gene Slick in an article in The Conversation, uh, and this is a very, very quick summary, but basically she outlines eight common disaster behaviors. Those are helping, anxiety regarding loved ones, so information seeking, evacuating and returning behaviors, which are complex on their own, um, supporting behaviors such as banging pots and pans for first responders during COVID, being curious, so that milling idea and confirmation on, from different sources, the act of witnessing, 
Uh, so being there during a historic event, writing about it, talking about it, taking pictures. The act of mourning, uh, so memorials, those sorts of things, statues of, of big disasters were, were big in the past. And then on the not so nice side of things, exploiting, uh, finding a way to, to benefit from the current situation, whether it's economically or professionally or, or personally. So that's what actually happens in terms of human behavior. And uh, I don't see panic on that list. Uh, another thing I think you could probably do within your organization or your own practice is just examine your planning assumptions critically. You know, are you planning for the disaster impacts or are you planning the disaster? I see a lot of emergency response plan that says, then this will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen. It hasn't happened yet. You don't know what's going to happen and planning the disaster, uh, hoping that it goes the exact way that you want it to is a bit of a waste of time. Um, ask yourself, are you spending resources to block normal behaviors or are you incorporating normal behaviors and predictable behaviors into your plan? Uh, are you filling the information void or are you withholding information? And ask yourself, what would make your plan broken or irrelevant? And if the answer is something changes, then your plan is already not effective. So uh, I think there's a lot of things we could do uh, around looking at our plans. And then finally, I'd encourage everyone to get involved. Be involved in the legislative reviews and the standards reviews. Um, uh, you know, bring up issues in your organization, probably not as in an inflammatory a way as I have done, but uh, in a, a little, little bit of a tactical way and hold your peers accountable. Uh, and please remember to keep calm, but sometimes it's okay to have a little bit of a panicky moment. So there you have it. That's my presentation on uh, myths and malpractice and, and disaster mythology. I hope you enjoyed it. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. We'll be back to our regular scheduled podcasting productions uh, next month. But until then, thanks so much for listening and happy Halloween. Just before we go, I do want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. This episode was brought to you in part by ATB Financial. Through ATB, you can donate to your favorite charities uh, in a program called ATB Cares. ATB Cares is a platform that allows you to donate and have your donation matched by ATB to further your impact. ATB will match 20% of every dollar donated to Alberta non-religious charities to an annual limit of $360,000. Eligible charities may receive up to $5,000 in matching per year, and individual donations qualify for a maximum donation match of $500. Check out ATB Cares at atb.ca. This episode is also brought to you in part by the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. We'd like to feature a podcast called It's a Conspiracy, who's put together a quick clip for you, which I will play now. It's a conspiracy! Alright! It's a Conspiracy is the podcast where we lay out the beliefs behind selected conspiracy theories, alternative accounts, legends, myths, and more. We do our best to present these without coloring them with our opinion until the end, where we let our feelings fly. We also do beer reviews, chat about geek culture, and whatever else strikes our fancy. Good times. And we're a part of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. 
As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go. The views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may belong to. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at username Epic Podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian. <laughs>